That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, everybody. I'm Lou Dobbs. Welcome to The Great America Show, and it is great to have you with us. I want to talk with you about a reality that I think most Republicans, real Republicans, not rhinos, are refusing to acknowledge, and it's important that we talk about it. The Biden regime and the Marxist Dem Party mean to destroy us, you and me, fellow conservatives, libertarians, independents, moderate Republicans, we all have to come to terms with the reality that Democrats are unified in their demand for conformity and their ambition to take down America. They are Marxists. They are Marxists. I repeat, Marxists. They are totalitarian. And they look upon us as their enemy, while most Republicans see Democrats as simply the opposition party. Too many see these destroyers as the loyal opposition in a two-party system instead of the Marxists they are. Marxists who mean to destroy the Republican Party to establish Marxist authoritarian government and work in absolute harmony with the globalist elites of the new world order. And we have to understand the American business establishment is working with the Marxist-led Democrat Party against what is now the populist Republican Party. And both European and Chinese leadership mean to, at the very least, diminish, if not outright destroy, U.S. world leadership and replace this great republic with a centralized totalitarian government. Call it what you will. It was in the context of these realities that President Trump over the weekend gave an almost two-hour-long speech at CPAC. Trump telling the conservative conference that Republicans have been led by freaks, neocons, and open border zealots and fools, end quote. The audience cheered and applauded President Trump loudly when he promised the Republican Party would not go back to being the party of Paul Ryan, Karl Rove, and Jeb Bush. And bad news for the oligarch donors who are pushing Governor DeSantis, former Governor Nikki Haley, and others to run against the former president. Trump outright crushed the CPAC straw poll, winning 62% of the votes. DeSantis was a distant, disappointing second pickup. DeSantis was a distant second with 20%, and third was the almost unheard of Michigan businessman Perry Johnson with 5%. Pompeo and Haley tied with 3% each, and Vivek Ramaswamy had 1%. No question, President Trump is the leader of the Republican Party and means to win in 2024. His base is obviously still with him, much to the discomfort of the Republican establishment and oligarch donors. And of course, the Marxist Dems who've been politically persecuting President Trump for almost seven years now. Our guest today is conservative attorney Kurt Olson, who's represented President Trump, Mike Lindell, Carrie Lake. Kurt is also a former U.S. Navy SEAL. Kurt, great to have you back with us. Your take on the political atmospherics that are heating up by the day. 
Well, Lou, I think uh, you know one of the the things that you're seeing right now is an increase in the tempo to go after President Trump, uh, both uh, legally uh, through the media and uh, whether it is uh, the investigation by Jack Smith or the uh, in, in the uh, grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia. The, you saw the grand jury foreman who went on her media tour, <laughs> gleefully talking about you know coming recommended indictments and so forth. But I think what you're seeing is that this is uh, very much focused on President Trump and his run for the 2024 nomination that is going to be fought both by the Democrats, obviously, but also by the Republican establishment. And specifically the, uh, the coming coronation or attempted coronation of DeSantis. I think there's just a lot of positioning behind the scenes and anything that they can do to diminish President Trump, you know, whether it's through legal action or the media, uh, they're going to attempt. I think it's going to be a, 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 an interesting next year and a half as they try these different machinations to stop him. Yeah, President Trump came out today and just hammered uh, Fox uh, News uh, and Rupert Murdoch uh, and, and tying it all to the 2020 election. Uh, and he he is the first person to stand up against uh, stand up against the the establishment here, if you will, and say, look, it is still a rigged election. It is still a stolen election, and and the facts support him uh, in so many ways. Your thoughts and uh, and I know that you represent Carrie Lake, uh, and I want to get a sense of where you stand with uh, with her case. Well, I do think that the elections have been rigged for quite some time. 2020, it just became, I think, readily apparent to everyone, and it's continued since. You know, specifically with respect to Kerry's case in the November 2022 election, it's very apparent, and you can see it you know, just from the undisputed facts. And so our case, we are going to be filing our petition to review the Court of Appeals uh, affirmation of the dismissal of our claims. We're going to be filing that petition for review in the Arizona Supreme Court today. But in terms of rigging an election, I'll give you two examples that are at issue, and it's very clear. Mm -hmm. Chain of custody is something that is critical to maintaining the security of mail-in voting. Now that mail-in voting is becoming, you know, uh, being pushed more and more, that is something that the Carter-Baker Commission back in 2005 was the most likely source of voter fraud because you don't know who's actually casting and sending in the vote. Chain of custody is one way to ensure that fake ballots are not being inserted in or that genuine ballots are not being pulled out. In Kerry's case, Maricopa sends its ballots when they come into their central count. Before they tabulate them, they send them up to a third-party processor called Runbeck Election Services, where Runbeck scans the signatures on the ballot envelopes, which are used for the signature verification process. And then they send those ballots back to Maricopa Central Count, where they're tabulated and counted. Well, the undisputed evidence shows that Maricopa violated chain of custody and they're required under the law 
to know the exact number of ballots that they're sending up to run back before they send them, which makes sense. You want to have a, an accurate count of when it gets out of your custody. They didn't. They estimated it. But Runbeck did record on what are called delivery receipts the number of ballots they received from Maricopa. Those receipts show that Runbeck recorded receiving 263,379 ballots. Runbeck also records how many ballots they then scan and ship back to Maricopa for tabulation. Those recordings showed 298,942 ballots being shipped back. So there's a 35,000 addition of ballots while the ballots were at Runbeck, 35,000 additional ballots were inserted and sent back for tabulation. It's indisputable. As a matter of fact, the documents that I'm referring to were offered by the defendants in support of their opposition to our appeal at the Court of Appeals, which the Court of Appeals completely ignored that evidence, just completely ignored it. And that's a very simple, uh, I mean, if that doesn't show a rigged election, I don't know what does. And you're before the Supreme Court now. The Arizona Supreme Court. Arizona Supreme Court. Uh, What what is your basic understanding of, well, what you expect to happen from here on? Well, this appeal is not a matter of right. So it's within the discretion of the Arizona Supreme Court to take the case or not. When you're at a state Supreme Court or the U.S. Supreme Court, they're not just interested in correcting a, uh, a, a wrong decision by the lower appellate court. They're also looking at what precedent does that opinion set. And so that's very important from a Supreme Court review because, as you know, in the law, appellate court decisions and other lower court decisions are considered uh, precedent. They can be used to justify future uh, actions and things like that by, by people as well as any resolving any conflicts. And so in this particular case, not only is it wrong, but the Court of Appeals basically ratified Maricopa's violation of Arizona's election laws on chain of custody. And so the consequences of this, if allowed to stand, would, have, would be far-reaching. So in the future, what the Court of Appeals said is, you don't really need to follow these laws that the legislature mandated and that are, that are critical to election security. So, and, what, so what do you expect to happen? What can they do? As it stands right now, Kerry Lake has been defeated. Uh, can that, is there such a thing as a redo? What, how does she get made whole yeah, if the Arizona Supreme Court agrees with you. Well, under the law, the election in Maricopa would be set aside. Now, we have also, in, in that case, if it was just purely set aside, then those votes in Maricopa would be thrown out, and then the votes in the remaining counties in Arizona, that result would be the final result, in which case Kerry would win. We've also asked, though, uh, as a relief measure, for a new election to be held in Maricopa, not run by these at best incompetent officials, but a new election to be held. And that would moot any argument uh, that uh, voters might be disenfranchised by this decision. But the law is, Arizona law, 
is that the election must be set aside when there is misconduct or illegal votes. And we clearly show that here. Just on that one example alone, there are additional examples as well, of course. Is that before the court as well, those other examples? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, irrespective of your uh, of your call for a, a, a redo as well as the set aside, uh, it's up to the Supreme Court whether or not to, obviously, it would seem to me the Supreme Court would want to follow the state law, one would hope, uh, because that is, uh, after all, what's at stake here, uh, is regulation and law and the degree to which it's not followed. It seems like it would be somewhat ironic if the Supreme Court were to take a position that is counter to the to the original uh, law that's written there. Am, am I wrong? No, you're not. And I'll, and I'll give you an example. I mean, the, the chain of custody law that I'm referring to specifically says as follows. When the secure container in which the ballots are held is opened by the county officials, the number of ballots shall be counted and recorded on the ballot retrieval form, close quote. The Arizona Supreme Court in looking at that statute said when the secure container is opened does not impose a strict time requirement to count the ballots. Secondly, the provision to count the number of ballots and note it on the retrieval form, the, the Court of Appeals held that an estimate is satisfies that requirement. So, you know, it's basically what the Court of Appeals ruling does with those that holding is it guts that law. I mean, it's it's clear cut. There's just common English language, you know, when the secure container is opened, you count it. That's pretty clear. That's not, you don't count it a day later. You count it when it's open because that's how you maintain secure chain of custody. You have to know what it is so that somebody hasn't then inserted or removed ballots in a, in a, illegally. And in terms of counting the number of ballots, if you just have an estimate, how do you know what, how can you follow any kind of chain of custody? You can't. And so that's a very simple, straightforward requirement, and it's a straightforward, you know, plain English language in terms of its, its read. And so the Court of Appeals, how they, you know, did somersaults and, and with a triple right. twist to, to get around it is, uh, has far-reaching effects in the future. Far-reaching effects, and, and it brings up this question. Uh, is the court system in Arizona, is it uh, straight up or is it uh, somewhat, uh, I'll put it this way, prejudiced? Well, I think you've seen from the beginning of the 2020 election challenges where, you know, well over 50 of them were all dismissed on, on the issue of standing. The courts didn't even want to touch the cases. So the, the issue of standing which is where you avoid addressing the merits of the case, getting into the facts and just say, you know, the plaintiff does not, uh, does not suffer any relief, is, is not properly before the court, does not, did not suffer an injury. You know, that was the kind of excuse that was used to push all of these election cases, which had, which- Across the country. Across the country, uh, which had substantial evidence of illegal voting and election fraud. And this was just part of the way that, that many in the judiciary, whether they, they just didn't want to deal with it, they were, you know, because of cancel culture and, and uh, you know, media pressure and maybe even peer pressure or something more nefarious, 
they these are were intellectually dishonest decisions in many 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 cases. I think in the vast majority, and so I, you know, judges are people too, and they're subject to the same pressures, the same prejudices, and um, you're not making I, us feel any better here. You know that, right? Yeah, I mean, there, <laughs> I my my senate when I first got into the law in 1992, I graduated law school. And I was so honored, I'd been in the Navy before, uh, to be a lawyer, and it was a big deal. I started out at a firm called Kirkland and & Ellis, and at the top tier firm, super, super ethical lawyers there. And my faith in the judiciary- From your, from your lips to God's ears. Yeah, yeah they, they were, it was just, a, it, it was a terrific firm back then. I, I can't say enough good things about it. I mean, and to the point where, I mean, I'll give you just one quick example. I, I was on the team. We were national trial counsel for Dow Corning in the breast implant litigation. We were tasked with reviewing all of the internal documents uh, of Dow Corning, uh, many of which had been marked as privileged and confidential, but did not justify. And some of them would be harmful in, if they were disclosed. And I can remember sitting with the partner there and we're looking at that and I'm saying, this is not privileged. And he goes, you're absolutely right. Off it gets disclosed. So there was never a hint of trying to cover anything up. And that's the type of ethos that when I first started, I felt existed. What you I started with Kirkland Ellis. Pardon me? I say you started with Kirkland Ellis. Yes. Is that yeah. Oh, that's a that's a powerful firm to start at. So congratulations to you. Yeah, I was uh, really happy back then. <laughs> I and I and I have to say my experience with Kirkland Ellis has uh, mirrored your own. Let me uh, let me turn, if I may, to to how soon you expect a, a disposition, a judgment, a decision from the Arizona Supreme Court on on uh, gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake. I think we will know if the. Arizona Supreme Court is interested in taking it within probably two or three weeks. Uh, the case has been, you know, law does not move, the wheels of justice do not move quickly. However, in yeah. this case, uh, as in, at the speed of law, they have, it has been moving quickly. And so we filed yeah. an appeal on December 31st. The Court of Appeals issued an order on January 3rd, expedited briefing. The Court of Appeals heard, you know, went into conference uh, to review all the briefs on February 1st. The decision was issued on February 16th, right. and we've now filed our petition. So I think that we will know uh, what the Supreme Court is likely to do in, uh, in the next couple of weeks. What, uh, do you have recourse uh, after the Arizona Supreme Court? We do. We do have the ability with these claims to petition the U.S. Supreme Court for a writ of certiorari. Now those are, you know, yeah, very difficult. Luck. Yeah, those are, they get about 10,000 petitions a year and they take, you know, 50 to 75. I mean, the issues here are worthy of the U.S. Supreme Court weighing in should the Arizona Supreme Court not take the case. Good. Well, I, you know, obviously I, I, I'm wishing you all the luck in the world uh, here, all the best of luck. Uh, I, I, I do want to take, we've got so much to cover. Uh, but I have to say this, you're talking about the speed of law and that justice, uh, you know, takes time. Uh, we have a crisis in this country. No one is talking about, 
And that is the amount of time that lawyers and judges, the judicial system is taking to reach decisions and to dispose of cases, uh, first fairly and honestly, but even that is in question all across the country as well. But when it takes years to go through trial after trial, and I'm talking about civil trials, I'm talking about felony trials of all kinds, capital crimes, it doesn't seem to matter. Courts have decided that uh, attorneys are paid by the hour and they're going to make them all wealthy. Uh, and I'm only being partly sardonic and sarcastic with that. But I just want to get a quick response from you on, on justice here. Well, there is the old saying, justice, justice delayed is justice denied. And it is an issue with the courts. Now, there, you know, many of the, those in the judiciary will say that you know, they're overwhelmed that there are open uh, vacancies that have not been uh, filled. And I'm talking about you know, the federal judiciary. No, uh, I am too, primarily yeah. the federal. Yeah. And so th there is that. Uh, there is a very heavy caseload. And courts, the chief justice you know, of each you know, federal district court, often they will set rules for the, uh, the district court judges and they'll monitor the the uh, the progress of cases now and if a ruling is not issued within a year you know little red flags will go off but it was uh, on it was unheard of yeah. 50 years ago that a case would take three years yeah. uh, it's commonplace now oh, yeah. and, and it's outrageous it's it's first of all it shows the indolence of the system uh it may also show that judges and the system is overwhelmed but the federal government spends uh, hundreds of billions of dollars and doesn't even account for it. What would be wrong with spending a couple of billion dollars and expanding the justice system so that we could have, uh, uh, there could be consequences and judgments and results rather than this nonsense of just going through process after process. No one trusts the judges. No one trusts the courts. Well, I think those are, you know, Two, two separate issues. I mean, there's a reason why people don't trust the judges and the courts. No, no, I understand, but I'm, I'm talking about yeah. just the, I'm talking about the delay. Yeah. And it just seems like it's one morass of one kind or another. It's a moral uh, morass. It is a, a, an issue of effectiveness uh, and a system that seems to be rigged against, uh, against anyone who is not a, a partisan of the same party as the, as the judges. I, I uh, have experienced that myself in terms of what is the solution. Certainly expanding the court system with additional resources would be helpful on the surface, but the trick is to get quality people who are going to issue uh, honest decisions you know, based on the law. And so you, you have to take that into account, you know, if there would be you know, uh, you know, a, a rapid expansion uh, that there are quality people to fulfill it, because otherwise you're going. I think it would be made. No, work. no, I, obviously. I, I. But what I'm saying is, if we don't have quality, and by the way, I think probably one of the real problems is about three fourths of attorneys are uh, Marxist Democrats uh, in this country. So expanding from that base would not be a brilliant idea. I quite to take your point on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the judiciary and the system is a reflection of the overall state of the country that we're in. And so it's just like the military, the judiciary and other uh, institutions and branches of government are a reflection of the people 
and the society that we have now. And I've seen a marked decline in ethics amongst lawyers at top law firms. Things that would have gotten me fired as a young associate at Kirkland are de rigueur now. And I'm talking about, you know, for example, when, you know, in a brief, citing a case and falsely stating what the opinion held. Yeah. And, you know, lawyers rely on overworked judges not to check, and they rely on overwhel overwhelmed opponents not to check, and they just try to get by with it. It's, I mean, look, it, it, it's depressing in many ways. I, I, I will, you know, just to, to be flat out, there, there's a, been a decline in ethics in our society. Uh, it, and there's a decline also in, in the, in the, uh, the integrity of our, our government. Uh, here is a statement. Uh, that I'm reading. The FBI now says it would take nearly six and a half years for it to release the thousands of pages of FBI Director Christopher Wray's emails that contained the word Trump over a four-month period that was requested in a Freedom of Information uh, request. The Center Square submitted the FOIA on August 8th following uh, President Donald Trump's uh, Mar-a-Lago uh, raid by the FBI. Now, this is the kind of nonsense that is going on. Christopher Ray, by the way, now says, by golly, he knew all along that it was the Wuhan Virology uh, Lab uh, from which the China virus was launched upon the world. How, how obvious and how pathetic uh, by the way, I commend him for at least acknowledging what everybody in America who paid any attention knew uh, during the, the pandemic. It was the China virus. It originated in China, and it wasn't an accident that it originated in China. Uh, your thoughts about Christopher Wray and this FBI? Well, let, let's, let's take the, uh, the response to the FOIA request. So I know a little bit about that. Uh, so it's actually only a little over 5,000 pages of documents. And the request was for a very limited period from April 1st, 2022 to August 8th, 2022, when the raid on Mar-a-Lago occurred. Four months. The, the idea that that would take six and a half years to review is ludicrous. And it kind of exemplifies the fact that you know, the government is no longer the servant of the people. They are operating independently for their own benefit. And this is clearly a cover-up. And... So that's just one example of the obstruction. Let me give you another. Yeah. Let me give you another, Kurt. Uh, Ty Clevenger, uh, civil rights attorney, FOIA, uh, uh, he, he launches FOIA investigations uh, seeking the truth all of the time. He is a great American. He has been fighting for years to get documents on uh, the uh, a number of cases. And guess what? We find out that the young man who was murdered in 2016, who was an employee of the DNC, we find out that Seth Rich uh, had a laptop, had a laptop. And it turns out there weren't one, but two laptops. And secondly, we find out after that, that the FBI was in possession of at least one of those laptops. That took him years. I believe, I believe it's correct to say three years to get through that. Uh, and this is only now coming to light. And we are now seven years, almost seven years distance from the murder of that young man. 
What make you of that? Again, it's, it is just an example of the FBI, like several institutions, that are basically operating for their own benefit and not for the American people. Institutions are made of people. They have now, uh, and if those people are ethical, then the institutions operate effectively and within the law. If they're not, then you're doing what you're just you know, talking about now. They are covering up and hiding. And by the way, that three and a half years with regard to Seth Rich, there have been a number of FOIA requests, and I'm not sure of all the ones by uh, Ty Clevenger, but the FBI actually denied having documents about Seth Rich. Oh, they denied. They that's what part of the problem was. Yeah, they they lied. They outright lied to Ty Clevenger, attorney at law, officer of the court, and citizen of the United States of America. And, And when you say that, you know, there are still people too. We have always said in this country, until the last quarter century, certainly, that we are a nation of laws. We have become a nation of very frail. Uh, and uh, undisciplined and wanton, wanton, uh, uh, wantonly corrupt uh, uh, people in our government. It is disgusting. It is appalling. And here we are. And then we keep going through the same processes of law, but they're under the control of the very people who have corrupted our government, who have infiltrated our government, and now hold it hostage. Well, look at look at Special Agent McGonagall or former Special Agent McGonagall, the New York. Uh, he was the counterintelligence head in the New York yes. uh, FBI office who was recently arrested for essentially, I believe, taking bribes from Russian oligarchs. And he was one of the primary uh, instigators of the Russia hoax against President Trump. He was helping lead the effort, which they knew was a frame up, which yep. was based on false <laughs> on false documents from uh, Christopher Steele, uh, which was which was originated in the DNC and the Clinton campaign. And of course, a, a law firm, because we have to have law firms, Perkins Coy, yeah. the, the Democratic Party's favorite law firm with a with a portal to the center of the FBI. It's outrageous. And and you know what? These stories show up for about five minutes in the national press, if they do show up at all. And then they're, they're whisked away from the memories and uh, minds and uh, certainly the, uh, the immediate consciousness of uh, American citizens who otherwise would be beside themselves, outraged and do something about it and demand change. But they demand change from those they elect. And those they elect are just as wantonly corrupt in many cases. And the cycle goes on. That's true. But I do think that there are good people now who are getting involved in politics who I don't think go to, are going to go to Washington and become part of the corrupt system. Oh, I, I, and so I, 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 I agree with you 100 percent. I agree with you 100 percent. But this this is there are good people within the FBI, too. There are good people across America, many millions of good people. But. Our government is under the control of a deep state who are, frankly, uh, they're Marxist in philosophy and and Kent, uh, and they are running our government. I can't think of an agency that isn't corrupted by political operatives uh, with a Marxist 
uh, basic Marxist ideology. It's, it's everywhere. When you look at how these institutions aligned themselves against President Trump, who was uncontrollable and was unabashedly pro-American, was calling out the deep state for their operations, for they're basically uh, helping, helping to destroy America for their own gain. And so whether it is the, you know, the outsourcing of manufacturing uh, to overseas, whether it is the domestic spying operations. I mean, you can go through example after example, not just even, you know, so with respect to President Trump, but I'm sure you remember a CBS reporter by the name of Cheryl Atkinson. I do. Cheryl very, Atkinson. Very good investigative reporter. And do you recall when she saw her computer operating on its own around two in the morning and immediately notified CBS, who was her then employer, they brought in uh, cyber experts who determined that there was the access that she had been hacked in with could only be done by a nation state actor. She then, uh, several, a couple of years later, sued Rod Rosenstein, who was then the U.S. Attorney of Maryland, and several other FBI officials for hacking into her personal computer. And the case against Rod Rosenstein, I believe, was dismissed last year. But against some of the other individuals, I, I believe it's still ongoing. But this is the level of corruption that exists within the government and that you know, President Trump stood against, but he was one person and one person cannot fight this tide by themselves. And you know, hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm a, uh, an unapologetic supporter of the president and, and everything he did during his term in office. And I pray that he gets in in 2024, because I think he is the only candidate that is not controlled by any of the establishment deep state interests and that will do what's best for the American people. Well, that's what he did uh, in the first, uh, his first term. And uh, would, there's no reason to think he wouldn't do uh, exactly as well and perhaps even unimaginably better than he did the first term in his well, second. And, and by the way, the polls are reflecting what you're saying. His base isn't deserting him at all. His base, that is working men and women in this country, uh, hard-working, small business people, uh, the middle class in this country, and those who aspire to it. Those are Trump's, Trump's folks. That's his base, and it's widening. Independents, minorities, you name it, they're going to Trump. They understand what Biden and the Marxist Dems have become and who is responsible for all of the calamity that's befallen this country over the past two years, whether it's open borders, whether it's uh, un, just unrestricted uh, uh, crossings of our border. Six, as many as six million illegal immigrants, we don't know where they are or what they're doing. All at the design of this puppet president who's under the control, I'm sure, of a of a cabal of Marxist leftists uh, who are directing this country toward uh, whatever devastation they can they can possibly manage. Right, let, let's turn to, if we may, this showdown that's been reported between the FBI and the Justice Department in the months leading up to Mar-a-Lago in the Washington Post. 
The headline is this, Kurt. Showdown before the raid. FBI agents and prosecutors argued over Trump and the head of the Washington field office, who was previously the head of the uh, Detroit field office and managed to put together that, uh, <laughs> that uh, I would call it entrapment of those folks who were accused of uh, wanting to kidnap the, uh, the, uh, the governor of, of Michigan. Uh, he, he is the one you who comes the one where there were There were 12 FBI agents trying to entrap <laughs> six individuals to convince them to, uh, to kidnap Governor Whitmer. Yeah. That, that incident, yeah. That, that's the one. Yeah. But he, in this article, turns out to be the white knight, the savior. He's standing, he's standing at the bridge, and he uh, trying to stop the nasty uh, Justice Department. Uh, because he felt that the for months, by the way, they had this internal fight, apparently, according to the Post reporting, because he thought it would be unseemly for the FBI to show up with their FBI uh, emblazoned jackets uh, and with uh, guns, uh, uh, you know, at the ready uh, as they piled out of their big black uh, SUVs at Mar-a-Lago and take take uh, all of the documents they could find in the president's uh, residence uh, and his uh, office there in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, this is a piece of, to me, it's a piece of PR management that is just, you know, it's a, it's actually a sub, I would give it a B plus in terms of quality, uh, but uh, it, it flunks on just the, the fact they were unaware in the article that they're revealing that this was, Six months in the planning, the making, the discuss, the discussing and arguing over the what they did uh, in the uh, dark of night on August 8th uh, of, of 2022. It's just extraordinary. Well, it certainly has the hallmark of somebody trying to get ahead of a coming story and to portray themselves in a good light. Now, perhaps. Perhaps this was true. The Washington Post, however, you know, is a mouth, mouthpiece and it is a propaganda outlet. So this leak is uh, probably has an ulterior uh, motive. I do think it's important, you know, in the context of framing this to remember you know, the documents that are at issue that were taken from Mar-a-Lago. It wasn't as if President Trump or his assistants walked out of the White House with these documents and kept them in his garage like Joe Biden did. These documents that were seized were packaged and sent to Mar-a-Lago by the National Archives and the GSA. And they were stored in a secure compartment, a skiff, you know, under the protection of the Secret Service, by the way, which Mar-a-Lago is. So the very fact that this whole operation was being ginned up is a farce. Yeah, it is. This, isn't, this isn't like Joe Biden keeping documents in his garage that he took home, stuffed in his pants or whatever he did with them. These documents at Mar-a-Lago, every step of the way, the government was involved in packaging them up and sending them to the president where they were securely stored. So why there was any of this is just complete nonsense. And you'll be pleased to know that Christopher Ray uh, <laughs> talking about uh, uh, the reputation of the FBI, he said uh, about the Hunter laptop and the Trump raid, January 6th and so forth, just a few minor items. He still has the temerity to stay with a straight face, quote, 
were on the American people's side. He forgot to mention the, what the attorney general had done, which is to set up American parents uh, as the uh, perpetrators when they appear before school boards. Uh, this is a, a I, I cannot tell you the, the rotten stench that is emanating from the Justice Department and the FBI. It is disgusting. I cannot, it is, they are just revulsive. Your thoughts? Yeah, so it's, you can see what they're, these are just platitudes. And so that's all he did. So you had parents, for example, the example you just mentioned, who were at a school board, and one of whom who was protesting the fact that his daughter was raped by a transgender student going into a girl's bathroom and the school board covered it up. And what was particularly atrocious about Christopher Ray's comments on this, you know, his plot is, oh, we would never, you know, go after parents for doing something like this, but we will go after violence. So he's implicitly labeling parents who are upset and angry at clearly government misconduct and clear wrongs. And he's kind of injecting the violence and the twist of words that he used to inject that, well, we're just, you know, we're going to go after violence, implying that the parents were violent. Well, these parents weren't, you know, bringing guns. They weren't threatening to shoot. They weren't threatening to blow up people. God forbid they weren't, you know, burning down the uh, school board meeting like Black Lives Matter and Antifa. And where is the FBI on that? By the way, what you're saying is news to many parts of the FBI. Because as those whistleblowers have testified and we have learned already, the FBI field offices have been ordered by uh, FBI uh, Washington to look at all of the instances that could be considered domestic terrorism and to construct it as such. All of this crap coming out of the Justice Department and the FBI, uh, you know, I don't know what the percentage is, but my guess uh, more than half of it is pure nonsense and a fiction of phony bookkeeping on the part of the of the Washington office of the uh, of the FBI, uh, because they are actually having the field offices doctor their their reports and their documents. And by the way, that's that's a practice longstanding in the FBI. Uh, just ask General Michael Flynn. Well, there, there's a reason why, for example, with General Flynn and the FBI's practices in general, if you're familiar with the 302 investigation, sure. there's a reason why they interview people and they don't tape it. So when they fill out a 302 form, it's the agents, the interviewing agents' recollection of what was said. Right. But in this modern day and age, you could tape something, and so there would be no doubt. And that, of course, you know, and, and if you look at the FBI with, with him, they they concluded internally, we found out, that General Flynn was not being deceptive, yet they persecuted yeah. him anyway. Well, they knew what he was, and they framed him. Uh, exactly. And they framed him actually twice with the August uh, effort uh, by the FBI. Then uh, subsequently, uh, in January uh, of uh, 2017, uh, it, it, it it's just it's a sad and disgusting story uh the what they did to a great american uh, general michael flynn uh and again it just you know to watch a swarmy uh, uh christopher ray stand there and and fence with brett bear 
uh, on Fox News as if uh, it, it was a candid uh, interview. Uh, did you see the interview? I did. Um, and I do want to, to uh, go back to one of the, the items you, you mentioned, in sure. that interview, which sure. is Christopher Ray's revelation that the uh, China virus likely came from a lab and that they had known this all along and said that. And, you know, I think that anything you hear from the government, an acknowledgement like that, that's not done because they want to get the truth out. They're trying to distract from what the real truth is. So you give a little bit of, of something in this case saying that what we always knew. But if you notice what's not really being discussed is the fact that Fauci funded the Wuhan lab with millions of dollars, that the Pentagon funded the Wuhan lab with millions of dollars, that other U.S. contractors, EcoHealth Alliance, were involved with Wuhan. The, the U.S.'s involvement with the Wuhan lab is extensive. Mm -hmm. and, and their involvement in particular with the coronavirus. And that's yeah. not something that is being talked about. And it should be. But by all of a sudden, you know, after two years of denial saying, oh, yeah, we knew all along it came from the lab and trying to portray China as the boogeyman here, that deflects from what the true picture is as to who within the United States government was involved with the Wuhan lab. You don't hear him talking about that. No, you don't. Uh, and by the way, there's a... <laughs> Uh, we have the capacity to understand the all of the, uh, uh, well, the malignant actors in this, and that includes, of course, and foremost, China, responsible for the deaths of a million Americans, seven million people around the world, and Xi Jinping never, ever once thought of issuing a warning. Instead, he uh, launched uh, Chinese nationals uh, on aircraft all over the world to spread the China virus. Uh, and we had people in this country talking about it was racist and politically incorrect, call it the China virus. It would be COVID-19. Uh, we have to take control of our language, our minds, and our expression in this country because we are quite, quite seriously uh, on the verge of a crisis just in terms of honesty and direct communication. Used to be Americans were known all around the world for being plain spoken, straightforward. And now we have people who start everything with, well, I'm not a racist or I, it's not the, you know, whatever. There is a, a self sort of a self-defense statement that has to be made about every uh, kind of thing or, or virtue signaling itself to just to put up a shield in our, uh, in our communications. It's outrageous. We have got to return to who we are. Uh, and our roots are just the simplest of any civilization in, in, in the country and is straightforward. We are plain spoken. We are honest. We're hardworking. We are brave and we stand up. What we have right now is a whole part of our population have decided to be snowflakes. They have decided to be daffodils and lilies and uh, carry on as if they have they have a lifelong guarantee of never being offended, irritated, or annoyed. Uh, it's just, it's bizarre what we have allowed the left-wing media to do in this country with the full support and direction of the Marxist Dem Party. Yeah, I think that, you know, what needs to happen, and it is happening to a certain extent, but an awakening of what I think you're referring to as the American spirit. And people who 
will not comply with the the baloney that's being put down. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, so uh, when masks were all the rage, I refused to wear a mask and would walk into a restaurant or to a, you know, a cafe or you know, sandwich place. And sometimes people would serve me and other times they you know, would uh, say to leave. And I just refused to comply with the mask mandate. Now, I didn't raise a, fuckus, uh, a ruckus, but I would, I would leave. But the American spirit of not complying with clearly uh, clear propaganda and, and and, and clear you know, control methods, which is what this is. That's, that's what is necessary, is people just standing up and saying, no, I'm not going to do this. And you'll take a few shots in the beginning, but all of a sudden, more and more people, when they see that, they'll join. And I think it's that kind of spirit of awakening that, that's necessary. I mean, one of the, there's, there's a, uh, and a, a podcast that I follow, it's actually, it's called Political Moonshine. And uh, he does a very spot on analysis. And what one of his observations that I really took to heart and thought was, was very profound. He says that people need to know the difference between what is happening and what is being done to them. And when you look at what is happening now, whether it is the energy crisis that has been imposed by the Biden administration, that's a manufactured crisis. The destruction of our own domestic energy production, which President Trump showed, you know, we have unlimited resources. Gas prices were two bucks a gallon. That was a policy decision. The policy decisions that have been made by the Biden administration have destroyed domestic energy production. The war in Ukraine, these are policy decisions to constantly escalate and provoke the war there as opposed to seeking a resolution. The open border, that's a policy decision. All of these crises are being done to the American people. This isn't something that is just happening out of the control. These are manufactured crises. And I think when people really realize that this government is in fact their, and I'll say it, it is their enemy. They are trying to hurt the, Amer the average American person, American people, the average American. And when Americans wake up to that fact and then start pushing back, that's when we uh, save our country. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I, I'm just sitting here, I'm, I'm thinking about the American people. They know that the government is not their friend. There, there was an expression 40 years ago, I'm from the government and I'm here to help is the biggest lie that you could imagine. Uh, it is, it's now just laughable. And as you suggested earlier, we've got a lot of people coming in in the two, in the 118th Congress. I would say we've got a good part of those 222 House Republicans who mean business about retaking this republic. Uh, your concluding thoughts, if you would, Kurt, we always give you, as you know, uh, the, the last word on this show. Well, I will say this, I, there is hope, and it's not just with the incoming Congress. So for example, I believe it's in Shasta County, California. I spoke with one of the uh, county councilmen there who, for example, was moving to ban the county, three of the commissioners uh, moved to ban 
Dominion voting machines there, and I'll say Dominion voting machines. And there was a hearing yesterday where the Attorney General of California and the Secretary of State and all kinds of forces uh, came in to try to push back on that decision. And this gentleman held firm. He held against the tide because of his conviction. And he's perfectly within his rights. He's representing his constituents. And that's the kind of courage to stand up against special interest, to stand up against governmental pressure to do what's right. And that's the kind of individual that we need a thousandfold over. And I think we're getting there. And that will be you know, what many have called the Great Awakening. And that's how we take back our country from, as you said, the Marxist Dems and the establishment that are trying to take our country down yeah. and actually harm the American people. It's, it's actually, it's stunning. I mean, there's you know, one thing that I've never been able to really process how any rational human being with this COVID China virus crisis, the fact that, that the government, the FDA and the media and many politicians and others railed and demonized cheap therapeutics like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine as effect as not effective and in fact dangerous to take for COVID. And now you have, you know, study after study, for example, that shows ivermectin as a as a very effective treatment. And it was used extensively in India. And in India, the population there, which is dense, you know, densely populated, they knocked COVID down within a matter of weeks. They disseminated care packages to every single citizen. And within about three or four weeks, there was no COVID over there. It dropped 90 plus percent. That could have been done in America. But instead, you had the FDA taking out ads comparing ivermectin to a horse dewormer. And come on, you're not a, you're not a horse. And this is where what is really scary, the government deliberately lied and set out to hurt people. And this is part of the China virus, how it was used to instill fear in the population, to justify lockdowns, all of the, you know, the uh, social control and the destruction of small businesses and everything else has stemmed from the fear that was put on the American people through this. And part and parcel with that was withholding treatments that could have saved lives. And that's, that's the kind of mentality when you refer to the Marxist Dems and the deep state, that is what we're up against. These people are evil and they need to be called out for it. And we need to recognize exactly the threat that we face so that people will stand up and fight it. Absolutely. Kurt, it's always good to talk with you. We appreciate it. Uh, thank you for being with us and come back soon. And good luck with the uh, decision uh, upcoming in the Arizona State Supreme Court uh, on the election uh, of, uh, of uh, we hope it'll be the election of Carrie Lake. Uh, and we will be uh, talking to you about that as, uh, as events unfold. Again, our, our best wishes and uh, best of luck. And God bless you. Thank you, Lou. And likewise, and always a pleasure. Thank you, everybody, for being with us. Hope you join us tomorrow when our guest will be former National Security Advisor 
under President Trump, Ambassador Robert O'Brien. That's tomorrow right here on The Great America Show. Till then, thank you, God bless you, and God bless America.